Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. My guest today is Amity Schles. Amity is a syndicated columnist for Bloomberg and a visiting senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. Her latest book is The Forgotten Man, A New History of the Great Depression. Amity, welcome to Econ Talk. Oh, thanks for having me. Amity, a standard view of the Great Depression is that Herbert Hoover was some kind of laissez-faire Milton Friedman acolyte who stood idly by as the economy plunged into, into depression and then Franklin Delano Roosevelt came along and inspired by Keynes, he spent our way out of it by putting purchasing power into the hand of consume, hands of consumers. You take issue with both of those claims, the hands-off part of Hoover and the neat story of FDR. Let's start with your take on Hoover. What was his philosophy? Well, I, I look at Hoover first not for what his philosophy was but for what his temperament was. He had free market elements to his philosophy, he came out of the world of markets. He was enormously successful. He was like a Bill Gates of his day because he had the luck and the talent in the area that was growing the fastest, mining at that time. If you were a gold miner in those days, an engineering miner, you were like um, the best kind of chip inventor today. You were in that area of the economy that was the sweetest. So he was a private sector man who understood the power of the private sector, but he his temperament trumped his philosophy, and his temperament was he was a control freak. <laughs> so he wanted to control things. He was a consultant. That's how he worked. He came in, fixed things as if he worked for McKinsey, and then stepped out. And when the crash happened, he tried to control it and did a lot of wrong things. One of the ones that I was surprised to discover, Russ, when I, when I went through it, was he called business together and said, don't lay off people, which we think of as a Keynesian thing to do. What he was saying is keep people employed so they have money, so they can buy things, so the economy can come back. But that's very hard on the business side of it because the first thing you want to do when you're in a recession is cut costs. And rather than lay off people, the other choice is to shut down. And indeed, that did happen because of Hoover's uh, action there, and he was—he used a lot of moral suasion. The, the, the bully pulpit. He said, "A good man will not lay off people." That's a very strong thing to say to uh, in a country. And the second, uh, very bad thing he did was not take seriously the importance of international trade and free trade, and sign off on a bad tariff, the Smoot-Hawley Tariff Act. Even though economists from all over the country wrote him letters saying, "You will hurt our economy." If you sign this, he his party was more or less for tariffs. It was in their platform. He knew better, but he, again, the control freak in him prevailed. And he said, "I'll sign the tariff if you give the executive certain special powers and create committees." And he signed the Smoot Hawley tariff, and that helped make the depression, the crash, into a depression. You talk about his temperament. I, I'd like you to give us a little more background on it because I found that. Uh, extremely interesting. Most people today, I think, have very little knowledge of, of Hoover other than that he was the president during the, the crash of 29 and that he was ceremoni unceremoniously kicked out of office by, by Roosevelt, by the voters uh, and, and leading to Roosevelt. But he was um, an extraordinarily accomplished man, as you point out, in, in a variety of areas, one of which was the, is, was the private sector in mining. But he was also the leader of a number of uh, top-down, government-led, or at least centralized would be a better way to say it, uh, projects. Uh, the relief of famine in uh, Europe in when was that? In the 20s? In, in um, Well, first of all, during World War One. In the and, late and part the, of the teens then? And the, uh, yes. Uh, again, a lot of this – Hoover was a man – if you met him at the, a dinner party, he'd seem familiar to you. He was enormously successful. He was usually the smartest person in the room, and he made the fallacious assumption that he was always the smartest person in the room because he had so often been the smartest person in the room. And his idea of 
how to fix things was to take charge. And when he, even though he might sometimes know that taking charge was was disturbing, he gave himself an excuse, which came out of his um, his moral views and a little bit out of his faith. He had a Quaker background. I wouldn't say he was a very very religious Quaker, but he had a Quaker background. And he said, "I am doing good with my great intelligence, and therefore that which I do is good." And um, he led a relief effort, very famous in Belgium. If you go to the Hoover Institution in California, you can see the flower bags that were embroidered by the Belgian ladies to say thank you to the Hoovers, and and the food that they provided did help the Belgians and keep them from starving. Uh, But there there was also an argument against that, because he was doing it during the war, and this um, food is fungible, and this allowed the Germans, who were occupying Belgium, not to feed the Belgians. So it was controversial. The English didn't exactly like Hoover butting in and leading an international Red Cross-style effort in in Belgium, and he also did a similar thing with a great flood. They had a flood like our flood, our recent flood. Theirs was in 1927. It was giant, and he led the rescue of the South, and he undoubtedly changed lives, but, but Coolidge, the president, and this foreshadows our own debate, wasn't totally comfortable with the federal government marching into the South and rescuing it from the flood because he f- believed that was the state's job. But the irony is, is that as you point out, he was a fixer, a doer, an engineer, a problem solver, uh, someone who felt that for problems to be solved, they had to be explicitly designed – the solutions had to be designed rather than having them emerge from the actions of individuals. And yet his, historic, his historical reputation is as a hands-off guy. Now, one of the examples you, you mentioned uh, was his use of the presidency as a bully pulpit to uh, keep – uh, businesses from laying people off and from cutting wages, if I remember correctly from your book. and But at the same time, he did more than that. He was active in trying to produce some uh, government spending and, and other things that he was hoping would cure this this, ter- this downturn. Yes, he, he did. He, Hoover was something of a constitutionalist, so he followed the rules, unlike Roosevelt, to whom we'll get later. But Hoover did believe that spending would help. That's a Keynesian-style belief, though you don't see a lot of him talking about Keynes. Um, he reached out to the states and said, and all the states wrote him and said, yes, we will spend money on projects. And one of the governors who wrote him was FDR from New York, a very important state, the California of its day electorally, and said, we will do good spending too in order to bring the economy back. Um, so he was he was for spending. Hoover has been, I think, um, he, he deserved all he got because he, he should have known better, but he just couldn't help himself, is my bottom line in the book. He should have known better, but he couldn't help himself. But he was very much punished for the things he did by history. Uh, don't you agree, Russ? One of the things he did that he did very beautifully was the Hoover Dam, in which he arranged a compact among states, again, following the constitutional line, to build the Hoover Dam, because a lot of many states are involved in the Hoover Dam in that area. Um, and it was named after him, and he was very proud of it, and it was going up. And when the Roosevelt administration came along, they took away the name because they didn't like the idea of any great project being named after Hoover. So they, they trashed him. The Roosevelt administration trashed him, and history trashed him. Yeah, well, that's um, – yeah, that, that, but you paint a richer portrait of the man, which I, which I think uh, is um – well, he, um, he in, uh, all the way through the 30s, he kept saying, I am a big spender. Right. He, the, the way that he, his reputation was bad and the way that he thought he could fix it was telling people he really was like Roosevelt, which yeah. was wrong. In and fact, he should have gone the other way. Well, actually, he did both because he tried all methods because he yeah. was desperate. But he kept apologizing. He wrote a number of apologetic books, and they were all basically about how he had acted and acted and acted when inaction might have been the better course in many of the areas. Well, uh, let's, well let's, speaking of action, let's, let's turn to Roosevelt. Uh, again, I think the, his, the, the stereotypical view, the cliched view that, that some people have of, of Roosevelt in the 30s uh, was that by his um, taking 
hold of the tiller of the economy as if as if there were such a thing. I, I find the imagery rather uh, unattractive intellectually, but 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 the idea would be that the you know the sh- <clears throat> the ship of the economy was floundering, and we needed uh, a strong hand at the tiller. Hoover didn't want to put his hand on the tiller. Roosevelt did. He steadied the economy and, and put it back into into healthy waters. Um, you paint a much more um, complex picture of Roosevelt's actions, and, and if anything, he comes across as a, a, a relentless tinkerer with the economy who tried this and that and the other thing in, in desperate hopes that something would work and certainly in the political hope that he would get credit for being active. Talk well, about that. Yeah, well, a helmsman has a course. He knows where he wants the ship to go or the, the craft, and I'm not sure Roosevelt really did have a course. Uh, but the historically, um, when we learn in school about what happened, we learn that Roosevelt came along and spent a lot, and that helped the economy. And he he spent here and there where it was needed, so he targeted spending, and that was especially useful and wonderful, and we can all learn from that and should do that nowadays. That, I'm oversimplifying. But what that explanation, and, and that comes out of the phrase, he said, we will do bold, persistent experimentation. Uh, and and we were taught that that was a wonderful phrase. But what that attitude neglects is um, an appreciation of the cost of uncertainty. When the ruler, which is what he was, a ruler really, because he had Congress with him, doesn't let you know what he's going to do next and is unpredictable, you freeze. And in the histories that I read of the Great Depression, this this aspect was generally left out. The economy froze and decided to wait to go capital did go on strike because Roosevelt was so creepily unpredictable that they were terrified and that cost by the they, economy quite a bit. By they you mean uh, investors, investors business you look at private executives. investment data, you look at employers. They were terrified that along would come a new rule that would change the old rule and it's not only that the Roosevelt administration's projects were bad, some were good, many were bad, but also that he kept changing course um, and not heading in any special direction. One of his favorite advisors, a man whom I came to love in writing this book, was called Ray Moley. And Ray Moley was um, an expert in uh, prisons and, and criminal law and reform, and he was uh, sort of like a Tocqueville, very wise. And Moley said, if you looked at Roosevelt's policies, um, you, you looked over them, and to say that they had any general purpose, to say that there was any single informing plan behind them, was as silly as to look at a boy's bedroom and see the snakeskin and the old mitt and tell yourself that an interior decorator had decorated that room, when we all know that a boy's room is random. Yeah. Roosevelt was random. And that worked politically because he was an exciting figure, and we'll talk also about other things he did um, that made him so successful politically later. But he was random, and I tried in the book to capture the incredible, terrifying sense of his randomness and why business went into hiding. And, And by the way, Russ, as you know, he did some very destructive things once business did try to hide, such as create an undistributed profits tax to eat away the essence of business, that's, a, that's a, like a wealth tax. Yeah, let's talk it, about that. What, it, what he, the claim was that the, the money needed to be, get, be put, quote, back into the economy. So the idea was that if, if companies kept their profits somehow, that was stunting growth, and this was to force them to turn the money over to the government who would spend it. Is that an accurate – That, uh, that is correct, and, and, but it also – takes away their ability to invest. Well, and discourages the the incentive to invest, too. It discourages the incentive to invest. Maybe they wanted to invest in long-term things. And, of course, when Roosevelt did that, he would alternately be pro-business, work with business in an almost Italian way, Um, like, you know, let's all work together. And then he would be anti-big business and pro-small business. He was um, living at a time with Justice Brandeis in the court and, Louis Brandeis wrote a book called The Curse of Bigness, and he didn't like laws that were about bigness. He rejected uh, one of Roosevelt's 
most important laws, the National Recovery Administration, the centerpiece of the New Deal, because it was too big and top-down and centralizing. So Roosevelt would go back and forth depending on what he felt Brandeis and the others would approve and depending on what seemed popular. And so he would be alternately cozying up to big business and smashing it and trashing it with his own Justice Department. Yeah, the... uh your description on the national the National Recovery Administration, the NRA. I'd like to let's let's talk about that because the scope of it is was not well known to me, and I think it's probably not known to to many of our listeners. Uh, and this tension at the same time between embracing bigness and worrying about bigness that somehow and this is a tension that's that's in our economic philosophy uh, today. This idea that somehow big is good because it's efficient, but big is bad because it's big and dangerous and powerful. And that tension, uh, Roosevelt bounced around back and forth between those two views. The, the National Recovery Administration, the NRA, was going to do a lot of damage to small business, correct, and make it easier for large businesses to grow despite the uh, – philosophical antagonism many people in the administration had towards big business. Exactly. The the NRA um, was a conflicting law. There were there were a lot of conflicting elements in it, but basically it said if we it, it it had a romance with the economy of scale. It said economy of the reason our economy isn't growing and we're in a depression is we're not efficient. So if we can be big and efficient and save, we will be just better. And if we can keep prices up, we will be better and stop deflation, which is a total fallacy. And um, if businesses can get along, it was sort of cooperative, like you hear um, now a post-war Germany where labor sits in the boardroom and works with corporate management and government. If you want to have an image for it, you imagine a bunch of men from different groups, labor, the company, the government, meeting in a room and setting the growth rate. It was very much inspired by the Soviet Union. One of the things I get into in the book is that the extent to which the Soviet Union inspired the NRA, the people who ran the New Deal were, as far as I could tell, by and large, not traitors. They did not work for the Russian government, and they were not mostly in the Communist Party. They were simply New Republic authors. But they were influenced by the Soviet Union. They thought it was exciting and good, and they ought to try it in the U.S., and the NRA was the biggest embodiment of that. So you... Um, I think the best way to do it, 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 but but the result was perverse because there were too many rules, and they were it was in every area of the economy, Russ, from sewing to tailoring to chicken slaughter. What I get into in the book, every area of the economy was addressed by codes and rules with false premises. And there's a poem uh, by Ogden Nash that I'll read aloud, you know, at least part of it that captures it. He wrote. Mumbledy pumbledy my red cow, she's cooperating now. At first she didn't understand that milk production must be planned. She didn't understand at first she either had to plan or burst. But now the government reports she's giving pints instead of quarts. Yeah, oops. It's a, it's a oops. wonderful uh, bit of, of uh, doggerel from it, Mr. Dash. It's, it's wonderful. And it... it, it, um, it the, and, and he... Abracadabra, thus we learn. The more you create, the less you earn. (laughs) Wonderful poem. So that was what happened. There were so many rules, people went crazy. And And people people were put in jail. People were put in jail. There were criminal teeth to these things. And I, I focus in the book on one family. They were called the Schecters. They were lived in Brooklyn. They were kosher butchers. And when I went... To look at it, I knew this was a famous case, Schechter Poultry v. NRA, Schechter Poultry versus the U.S. Um, they were charged with breaking the NRA rules, and maybe they had to go to prison. Um, there are many, many charges against them. And they were convicted in the first instance, and they fought back. They barely spoke English. Their lawyer went to Brooklyn College, and he was up against Harvard lawyers from the Justice Department. And they were just a small... Family business. The thing I find most striking about this, that part of the uh, the book and that story, which is so remarkable, is this: it's a family business. You know, it's run in in some modernish sense that there were books, there were accounts, but they were 
picked out to be an example. I could say plucked. Uh, they were plucked to be an example of how business, especially small business, had to get in line and and, and conform with these regulations uh, that were going to basically cover every single bit of the economy. That's right. And it was their emblem was the chicken, and the government's emblem was the eagle. The emblem of the NRA was a blue eagle. It was a kind of a wartime culture. So it was the chicken versus the eagle. That's what the chapter is called. And they fought back, and I, what I did was I went back and looked at their testimony, which I hadn't read anywhere else. And when you look at their testimony, you see they were making the same economic arguments that Professor Russ or <laughs> Professor Boudreau, his colleague, or Professor Friedman, Milton, the late, or Professor Samuelson make in classrooms just in their poor immigrant language. For example, the lawyer from the government, Walter Lyman Rice, was quite hostile to them when they were on the stand about the fact they were charging low prices and saying, you don't understand, you're a bad economist, you're lowering your prices, you're hurting the economy, was the gist of what he was saying. And they'd say, I charge low prices like anybody else. That's the market. Or um, the lawyers would berate the little sectors, and they were small, um, and say, you're not very educated, are you? You're not an agricultural economist. And the the sectors who were immigrants would say, oh, no, I don't have college. I don't have, the quote was, I don't have school, one of one of their friends said, not much school. And the lawyer kept saying, but you're not an economist. You don't know what you're talking about. And finally, the, one of the men, not a sector, but but someone else in the case, drew himself together and said, I'm not an economist, but I am an economizer. I know, that is, the law of markets. And I know I have to charge low prices, even though the NRA says no, because I won't survive. And the chicken market in Brooklyn during the Depression with high unemployment is very, very competitive. The other part that I thought was, uh, I think uh, listeners would enjoy, is this ar- this argument about uh, the role of the middleman and straight killing. The The Schecters were middlemen. They didn't have their own chickens. They bought chickens and then sold them to retailers. And they they slaughtered the raw the living chickens and then processed them and then sold them to retailers. And part of the NRA was to rule out what was called straight killing, which was or to allow I forget the terminology, but the idea was is that consumers could not, in this case the retailers, could not pick out their own chickens from a batch. They just had to take the first ones that came to hand. And I mean it's such a horrible, grotesque argument. But it really, for me, it really highlighted this bizarre philosophy that underlay this uh, this NRA and, and and the bad economics of this period, which was somehow you had to make it more efficient. And if you let customers pick out their own chickens, that would be inefficient. It'd be better for it to be quicker. And right, so there, there are two things <laughs> going on here. One is this fundamental breach of what we all know, which is the value of consumer choice in an economy to send signals. It's not only good for the individual consumer to get the chicken that he wants, and this was a period when there was still tuberculosis and no antibiotics, and what animal you ate could kill you if you ate the wrong animal, right? So consumer choice was very, very important. The the housewife, I want that chicken, the healthy-looking chicken, but also for the rest of the economy because it sends a signal. Right, right. So, punishes firms that produce lots of bad chickens. That right. the thing, so, the, the, thing then, but the second thing I just want to get to the yeah, middleman thing. Um, so, so there was this rule that made no sense. You can't pick your own chicken. Chicken business is a haggle business, especially in the ethnic world, the religious world of kosher food. Uh, it's a haggle business, and, and haggling and picking were not allowed. But the second thing is this concept that the middleman gets in the way or is somehow not a not a, a good person it's a parasite age old concept yeah. it's in, it's um i would say it's anti-semitic because jews uh, in europe were often playing the middleman role they were trading buying and selling rather than producing um and it's a fallacy to believe that middlemen don't help the economy because actually they render the economy more efficient uh, and the New Deal fell into that old medieval fallacy by subscribing to it. Sure, because they, you know, just taking this idea of, of picking your own chicken. If if you're a uh, provider of chickens and most of your chickens are crummy, 
uh, people aren't going to want to use them. And if somehow you always provide lousy ones, uh, the marketplace is going to weed that firm out. It's going to make it harder for that firm to survive. The consumers aren't going to want that. But if you don't let people choose and you just stick them with whatever they have, that whole mechanism is put is – it doesn't work as well. And, and, and what struck me, Russ, was the arrogance. The lawyers in the Schechter case were arrogant, arrogant men. Uh, um, they were basically – there was an, uh, an ethnicity issue that I had never thought of before I looked at this. They were Anglos. They were from Washington and Harvard. And they were attacking the chicken people as ethnic and corrupt. So it, it was like Al Capone a bit. The untouchables from the capital come, the clean people – and they attack the little bad ethnic people. And it's not a particularly – it is a dirty business, chickens. It so is, chickens it's <laughs> is a dirty business, so it's easy to caricature. Yeah. And it has, through history, been caricatured. Um, and there was – so all this was going on, and the chicken people happened to be right, and they wrote poetry about their case. And what's wonderful, and this is a story that I hadn't really – known before, was they won. Yeah, that's no, a great story. The Supreme Court found for them, and the Supreme Court is portrayed in the classical histories as bigoted and creepy, and they were bigoted. Uh, this is the court that had um, decided uh, on the Scottsboro Boys, mm-hmm. who um, wrongly, I guess, or mm-hmm. at least with wrong outcome for the boys, and uh, were regarded as in, at least in retrospect, it's racist and bad, and yet they, if you want to look at it through a race and cultural lens, which we can for a minute, they sided with the little ethnic people in the chicken case, in Schechter poultry, and against the big government. They had, of course, jurisprudential reasons for doing that, um, the issue of delegation, the issue of commerce, the Commerce Clause, those were the, the real legal reasons why this happened, but there was an ethnic element which I found quite compelling. And what we've forgotten is how nasty the writing was at the time. And the columnist Drew Pearson mocked the Schechters at length in his articles, calling, you know, their lawyer was a little hook-nosed person, writing things that we wouldn't write today. And that was just all part of the story and in the name of a wrong, bad law. And and because the Schechters uh, won that case and avoided jail for – again, it's a remarkable thing. They were, they were going to go to – I think you said there were 60 counts of, of wrongdoing on their part, but, but some of those counts were simply the idea that, that – they had charged too little, which is just a remarkable thing. Uh, because they avoided that, that those counts because the Supreme Court sided with them, they did not go to jail. And the NRA had to be uh, – the scope of the NRA had to be reduced, correct? The, the MRA had to go away. The whole thing collapsed. The bone of it – we're sticking to the butcher metaphor here. Yeah, the here. bone and sinew of it, one of the justices said, uh, just couldn't hold up. And uh, I also looked at the stock market throughout the book – and uh, I note in the book that the stock market, the Dow, began to rally around the time that the Schechters won. The, the high water mark of the New Deal was over. The Schechters won. The NRA be- what became illegal. And the Dow recovery tracks that, um, which was interesting to me. Well, I've t- never studied that before. And we, we talk a lot about how uh, presidents quote, run the economy. They, they don't. It's a, it's a silly metaphor. Again, this sort of helmsman or steering of the car of you know, the economy or the train or whatever metaphor you want. I think all those metaphors are misguided and the president doesn't do anything close to running the, con- the economy. It, but in those days, we were getting closer to that. Uh, the NRA really was an attempt to micromanage the economy. I think you know, with very bad economic principles, but the, the level of control was quite extraordinary, and that really was, as you say, the high watermark of that viewpoint, and mercifully, uh, it receded after that. It, and, and the markets told us the story. There's one meter of Roosevelt's success that's his fantastic success in the political polls. But there's another meter that's the unemployment level, which was 2 in 10 frequently through this period. 20, 2 in 10, 20%. 20%. And uh, the 
the, the, I argue that the Dow is an important meter too, and it didn't come back, as you know, Russ, until the 1950s. This was, a, and I, I argue in this book, it just wasn't merely monetary issues that affected that. It was monetary was important, but so was Washington policy. I just wanted to read uh, another little tiny poem from Mrs. Schechter. Yeah, I like that poem. Go ahead. Because the human angle to the great story is just is always there. She was so happy when her husband won and they were exonerated and she wrote a poem and I actually got permission to use this poem from the family. No more excuses to hide our disgrace with pride and satisfaction I'm showing my face for a long, long time to be kept in suspense. Sarcastic remarks made at our expense. I'm through with that experience, I hope for all my life and proud again to be Joseph Schechter's wife. (laughs) Where'd you find that poem? I found that poem in the newspaper, but I actually went and got permission from Glenn Asner, who is a descendant of the family, and he he, uh, reached out to, I think, one of the daughters because I didn't want to reprint it without their permission. Uh, They look, the Schecters looked a little bit at my telling of their story, Glenn did, to see if it felt accurate, which uh, I thought was important because it hasn't been much written about before, and yet these are... There's a book called Gideon's Trumpet. It's very, very important to um, American liberals and to many of us about Miranda. Mm-hmm. Uh, Anthony Lewis, right? Yes, Anthony Lewis. It's about the having your rights read to you when you get, and when you are arrested. Um, and that book just means a lot to generations and generations of people. That was the lawsuit, the Gideon case. Well, this is a, a Gideon case, the Schechter case. It is our lawsuit. It is the lawsuit that stopped the NRA. It stopped big government. It set back the New Deal. The New Deal never recovered. And I believe it's very, very important to us. Well, it it stopped uh, big government at a certain dimension. The, 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 any worry that we were heading towards some form of um, national socialism or on the right or uh, five-year Soviet-style plans on the left, it, it took the hand of that uh, – off that teller to, to a large extent. Of course, it was not literally the end of big government, at least measure, measured in terms Absolutely of sp- no. spending or regulation. But but it it did mark the death knell, the death knell of um, of that level of control, uh, which is all to the good. There there were components of the NRA that were passed as new laws, such as the Wagner Act had the labor component, uh, and there was hours. Act about hours and standards, right? Later in the in the New Deal, so Fair Labor Standards Act, yeah, right. So the wage was passed. So we lost a lot of the ground gained in Schechter. Still, I think in terms of uh, common sense, it was a, a recognition um, that I, I, I want to mark anyway. Yeah, no, I agree. I, the other thing I think that it illustrates uh, again for readers who for listeners who don't have uh, a historical perspective is the remarkably low level of economic reasoning <laughs> that was uh, in the debates of the day. Uh, sometimes it's easy to get depressed about the level of economic understanding in America, and it's even easier to get depressed about the level of economic understanding that politicians at least speak about. But one thing the, that comes through in the book is how depressingly bad uh, the level of economic understanding was at the time, and it, it cuts across so many dimensions. The most famous one, of course, is the role of money and the money supply that, that Friedman and his co-author uh, Anna, Anna Schwartz, Schwartz. Uh, talk about in the monetary history of the United States. And we have a nice podcast uh, with Milton about, uh, about that work and its impact on, on the world. But you know, one of the things that we have to think about when you're, when you're thinking about those times is how little understood the Federal Reserve was. It was relatively new. I think it was created, what, 1913? It's relatively new. Its role was not well understood, not just by the average person, not just by investors, but by the people in charge of the board of the Federal Reserve itself. And so that would, that is one level of economic ignorance. That's sort of what you'd call the macro level, macroeconomics. Then you have this extraordinary weird understanding of microeconomics, the ideas of – the idea that you can make the economy better by, say, killing pigs, driving up the price of pig and pork, and thereby making people richer. Well, it made farmers richer and it made consumers poorer. It's a horrible idea to create wealth by destroying stuff. And yet 
that was not uh, understood, or at least it, it wasn't understood well enough to stop it from happening. It wasn't understood well enough to stop it from happening, and it was the big precedent that we live with today. When you see ag subsidy in the billions today, it it, it happened in the 20s, but it was institutionalized to the most serious extent for America in the 1930s. And they did kill pigs. They killed 6 million pigs um, before they grew up in order to drive up pig you know, pork price at a time when people were starving. And the outcry was, at the time, very loud. I would differ with you a little. I believe the understanding of people in government about economics was poor and the rules in government were poor, but there was a lot of native understanding among the people that was usually good, certainly on the micro side. Maybe not on monetary. Monetary is hard. Yeah, it's a lot. Monetary is hard for everyone. It's like it's, Monetary is like physics. On, <laughs> really, only 10% of the population can do it, and the rest of us just pretend. Oh, hello, but what... Yeah. Um, excuse me there, Russ. That's okay, I'm what, still here. What... Um, did you want me to speak a bit about the monetary? Was no, that- not particularly. I just I well I'd like to I like your point about the economic ignorance being maybe not as widespread at least at the, in, among the general public, but I felt like in reading the book that the level of debate about certain economic uh reforms or certain economic ideas um that today a lot of those ideas would have trouble surviving because they're so absurd. I think there's a better understanding. There's certainly a better understanding of monetary policy by economists, uh, I think there's even a better understanding of how markets work by uh, the general public that would stop some of those absurd ideas from being uh, policy, but may- maybe not. Well, I, I think so, but although you wonder nowadays about protectionism. Yeah, the, no, the, it's always the, a, an You wonder there. about that. The, there, there was an economist at the time who understood that it was a monetary problem, that there wasn't enough money. Literally, and that was Irving Fisher. Yeah, who's who's the father of modern monetarism, and you know, extraordinarily important figure in the history of economic thought. He made indices as, as well. He price he, indexes. Yeah, he knew. Uh, he knew that there. The if you want to put it in kindergarten language, which is the level that most of us operate at anyway, there wasn't enough money. And because of their affection for the gold standard, and they had a mismanaged gold standard, by the way, they they didn't want to make more money, and they didn't really know how to, and they didn't have the right Fed law yet because the the modern Fed law was passed in the 30s. So around the time of the crash, they didn't have the system set up right. They just didn't know how to handle it. So even had they wanted to, it would have been harder. They just weren't really aware of how to do open market operations to buy and sell bonds to make or extinguish money. So Fisher saw all this. He was a professor at Yale, um, but he was also a bull. And he was someone who was a very big 20s bull. And when the... By a bull, you mean an optimist about an the optimist. future. He believed the stock market should go up and up. And when the market crashed, he became the emblem of wrong judgment. So people said, Irving Fisher, what a joke. He said the market could go higher. And he did indeed lose money that he invested, so he became a ridiculous figure. Um, but the truth is, he was right. There wasn't enough money. He, and in the book, I talk about how he tried to talk to all the presidents. He he went to see Hoover. He went to see Roosevelt. He went to see Wilkie when he thought Wendell Wilkie would become president and tell them his story about how there wasn't enough money and there was deflation or and there needed to be more money. And he was basically a prophet who was mostly right about this. And uh, again, character played a role too here. He was kind of an up and down person, maybe, I don't want to speculate, but maybe manic, a little bit crazy, but crazy with genius. And he seemed like a nut, but he wasn't a nut. He was mostly right. Yeah, he's a really smart guy. uh, On on this issue. So I I tried to capture some of that. And he he wrote to his son and uh, to his wife, and his son wrote about those letters uh, trying to see the president, um, and he was at first very pleased with Roosevelt because he thought Roosevelt understood there needed to be more money and would try to create it. And Roosevelt did, in a very primitive way, try to create more money. Uh, but the way that he did it, rightly, disappointed Fisher because it was the, Roosevelt did it by pouring effectively thimblefuls of water into the ocean in the hope of making the level go up. He didn't do it a very efficient way, and he gave up fast. 
and the uh, the problem of deflation and it's um, as you say it's it's a complex topic, but I think the easiest way to understand it for our listeners is that if prices are falling or rising, that's not so important. What's important is whether people expect them to rise or fall and have taken that rise and fall into account in how they write their contracts, especially with respect to borrowing and lending. And if you haven't done that, if you didn't expect prices to rise or you didn't expect prices to fall, contracts over time then become very painful because something, a house that you bought that you thought was going to be worth enough money that you could borrow against it or or, or use it as a, as a form of collateral suddenly uh, becomes difficult because fulfilling that promise to pay off that mortgage becomes difficult because wages are falling, because yeah, prices are falling. Yeah, it's always bad to be a borrower in a deflation. And it's, a, it's bad to be a lender at a time of inflation, but in a world where there's debt and prices are falling, it's a very alien world to us in, in 2007. We have, we have no experience of it. But in, in the old days, before the Fed was active, uh, that problem had to work itself out fairly painfully, and in this case, it worked itself out very tragically uh, for people who owned homes that they had borrowed against farmers and others, and that did have a, dis- a very they destructive... They lost their homes. Yeah, a very destructive effect. Sometimes as many as three in ten or four in ten in some towns. Actually, Ben Bernanke, the Fed chairman, has written about this himself. Um, the What I was going to say is it also helps us to understand our grandparents' personalities. The deflation punished risk takers, people who were leveraged. Right. If you were leveraged, you look like a complete fool and you lost everything. If you were parsimonious in a deflation and maybe even a lender, you were rewarded and quite well because so many other people were unemployed, you could hire them very cheaply. So that was the character that was a good character when our grandparents were growing up, being adults or our parents or our great-grandparents. And we still, you know, when we see our grandparents today or our parents or our great-grandparents, depending how who, who we are, um, saving rubber bands right. or buying savings bonds with low rates of interest, that all comes out of the Depression. Yeah, no, it's a very interesting uh, cultural side to the Depression. Let's turn to that for a minute. Um, my uh, my parents were born in 1930 and 1932, respectively, and, and they were definitely – Affected by that experience growing up in that in that world, uh, it did make them much more conservative uh, economically, financially. It made them much less eager to take risk. Uh, it made them much more careful with their spending than than I think uh, I am or my children will be because of that very um, traumatic uh, experience. But you tell some wonderful examples in the book of the cultural impact of the Depression and try to give us a richer picture, I think, than, than the one that, that most of us have. Talk about that. Well, uh, we tend to think of that period as a period where government became important in our lives. But I also looked at some people who demonstrate that that period was the period of turning inward and becoming strong without government. One of the big heroes of the period for me is Bill W., the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, AA. He was actually a Wall Street person. He drank his way around Wall Street. He, I'm in, in Brooklyn now. He, he lay on the cobblestone streets of my neighborhood drunk as a Wall Street sort of a proto-stock analyst. He was a miserable figure, didn't know where he was going, lost his money, and so on. And then, as uh, as people know, he he created the modern self-help group to address his problem, in that instance, alcoholism, the meeting where there's no clergyman leading it, because historically clergymen lead uh, help, help situations, right? People go to the priest or the rabbi or the minister, He created this new thing, which was quasi-religious, but it was citizens helping one another in a community, a network of people, the AA group. Uh, And he did it well aware that it had nothing to do with government. Indeed, his wife reports that he wrote letters to Roosevelt complaining about Roosevelt's policies. So he was a little bit against against the big government thing, and he he believed you, you... it comes from within, getting through such periods, and his AA is a model for us. So in a way, there's a triumph over the New Deal because his AA, to us, those two letters, that acronym still mean a lot to us. All kinds of self-help groups uh, from drug 
to whatever codependents are named after and modeled after his AA, whereas the alphabet agencies of the New Deal are foreign names to us. Now, the NRA, you and I had to explain what it is. That's the legacy from the period that's worth remembering, this self-help component. Yeah, it's a nice example. Um, Let's turn to the politics or the political economy. One of the things that's chilling about the book for me is the way that Roosevelt and his um, his aides used class warfare. It wasn't the first time in American history. Obviously, the late, late part of the 19th century and probably goes back to the founding. Uh, the rich are often vilified when it's politically convenient. But it again plays into, a, for me, what's, what's a depressing example of uh, economic ignorance – which is this idea that somehow if the rich have a lot of money, they've stolen it from somebody and therefore uh, justice requires that they be punished. Uh, this view that the world is a zero-sum game, that everything that is gained by by the Bill Gates or Warren Buffett or in uh, in that era, the Mellon, the Mellons or the um, uh, other successful folks must have come at the expense of someone and therefore it's just to take them down. And uh, you give a lot of interesting and, and chilling examples of how that rhetoric was used, very parallel to the uh, post uh, the Sarbanes-Oxley experience, where somehow business has failed and has to be fixed and regulated, regardless of whether the fixing is going to make it better. But somehow something has to be done to rein successful people in. It's a total misunderstanding of how wealth is created. Uh, that it is created; it doesn't just uh, isn't just moved around. Uh, what do you think of that? Um, I'd, of like that? Say, I'd like to say two things. The first is that Sarbanes-Oxley language is mild compared to what they use then, and the reason that is so, and indeed the reason I could write this bo- book is we learned, you and I, Russ, in our experience in our age, learned that markets are generally good in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Well, not so much the 70s, well, sort of. The 80s and 90s, we've learned that the private sector is really important, and we've seen the Soviet Union and the plan model fall away. So we know this, and then we're able to go back to that period and see how very wrong they were and see it as an exception rather than the rule. So that's a, that's a big change. Yeah. Um, the rhetoric then was horrible. The, Roosevelt said he knew that people hated him, the people he attacked, and he said on the air, and I welcome their hatred. He outright declared war against the sector of the economy that could have given the growth that would have ended the Depression sooner. And he had a new tool to wage that war with, which was the tax code, because the income tax, like the Fed, of which we earlier spoke, was young. But it did exist, and it mostly applied to rich people, all applied to rich people. Uh, Low earners did not pay the income tax at that time. The average earner did not. And so they raised the income taxes way up from where Andrew Mellon had had them in the 20s um, into the uh, 70s, I believe. There, I'm not quite sure. I have to look up my chart. I think that's right. Yeah, yeah, into the 70s. And that... uh, that, again, prevented people from creating jobs. And he also prosecuted people, and he did so in an egregious, uh, inexcusable way by taking avoidance, which is sometimes legal, or um, and evasion, which is illegal, and conflating them and treating them as if they were the same. Anyone who tried to pay less taxes was a criminal as far as he was concerned emotionally. And his Treasury Secretary, Henry Morgenthau, had the same attitude. And that's wrong. All Americans know you have the right not to pay the taxes you don't owe. Um, And it scared everyone. And what's more, it was hypocritical. Um, He he prosecuted his – there was a Greenspan in that period. It was Andrew Mellon from the 20s. Mellon had served three presidents, or it was said three presidents served – under him. He was very grand, and Roosevelt prosecuted him throughout the entire 30s. It would be like prosecuting Greenspan today for tax evasion, which Mellon didn't do. Um, right, and- it, it was just so shocking. I just make sure I get this right. He, he, was, he was dragged into court for taking deductions. Is that is that He was accurate? dragged into court for <laughs> taking deductions that he was allowed to take. And in the 20s, Mellon didn't especially. Mellon liked a, would have liked the flat tax. 
Mellon liked a clean tax code. He didn't like special interest gifts. In fact, in the 20s, he had drawn up a list of the various tricks and, and the legal tricks, the various deductions and so on that were in the tax code with an aim to getting rid of them in the ideal wor- world. And in the 30s, what Roosevelt did was use that list against Mellon by showing, enumerating the various instances in which Mellon had used them. But Mellon played paid plenty of taxes, and he did it all legally. And yet, as a very old man, uh, he turned 80 while in the courtroom. Here he was being strung up, uh, and his son Paul says it was terrible for him. He didn't say it was terrible for him because he was a Victorian personality and he didn't complain, Mellon. But it was clearly terrible, and he died before it was all over. And yet FDR didn't treat himself the same way. I have a letter he wrote to the... uh, Bureau of Internal Revenue, which is their IRS, about his own taxes, he said, I I really don't know how much to pay, so you just have to love me and assume I'm being good. He wrote to, it was Guy Halvering, the Commissioner of Internal Revenue, my taxes, as this is a problem in higher mathematics, may I ask that the Bureau let me know the amount of the balance due. (laughs) The payment of 15,000 doubtless represents a good deal more than half what the eventual tax will prove to be. (laughs) <laughs> I, he didn't pay his whole taxes, and he couldn't be bothered by figuring out what they were. Well, and of course, we live in a world today where if you give your uh, situation over to the IRS, the amount you actually owe is a, it has a somewhat random component since the tax code is so complex that uh, different IRS agents will figure your tax differently, is my understanding. They've done a number of experiments that way. Oh, yeah, of course. And so what he, he he turned people into criminals who were not criminals, and I, I had some insight into the McCarthyism here, Russ, about this, because when I grew up and I learned about McCarthyism and the attacks of on people as communists in the fifties, one thing I learned was how mean the McCarthyites were. Those were Joe McCarthy and the others, right? Right. Nixon. The outstanding thing about them was not whether or not the people they were targeting were communists. The outstanding thing about the whole situation was they had no decency. Have you no decency, sir, right? They were vicious people. They were vicious people, those Republicans who attacked the the poor artists who were blacklisted, right? Um, Setting aside the question of whether the people were working for Moscow, some were, some weren't, um, or it was this issue of just the bad character of being so nasty. And what I learned when I went back to the 30s, Russ, was where the Republicans learned how to be nasty. And they learned it from the New Dealers. Because Roosevelt made up lists of taxpayers he wanted to target. The lists of McCarthy were foreshadowed by the lists of Roosevelt, where he targeted completely innocent people and smeared their name for no other purpose than class warfare. One of the lessons here is that... um Power is um, it's not a good thing. It, uh, it corrupts people, it, and, it, and it, it turns them arrogant, as you point out earlier in the discussion of the Schechter case. There's an imar- remarkable, a remarkable amount of, of self-righteous uh, arrogance that runs through some of the, um, the way these, uh, these issues go, and it, and it is on both uh, left and right and Republican and Democrat. It's um, – it's the way the game is played. It's not a. It's a. It's a blood sport politics. It's, it's a ugly. blood sport. Hoover was a Republican. Roosevelt was a Democrat. The the Roosevelt himself. I got very much into his character too. He was a control freak. Also temperament. In his instance, I believe illness figured here strong, strongly because he was in discomfort, if not pain, throughout the presidency every day. And a person in that much pain has a little bit of a shorter attention span. He's more restless. He's more impulsive. It's all about getting away from the pain or the discomfort. And you see that with FDR when he was shifting gears, changing all the time, moving the tiller. He was constantly seeking to avoid the pain. And I believe that also informed his presidency. Uh, One thing we haven't talked about is the rule of law. And uh, it really was at risk because of that relentless uh, tinkering and the um, the use of, of regulation and um, at both the personal and political level. It's it's a dangerous time. A lot of people justify it ex post, arguing that well, it could have been worse. We could have ended up like the Soviets. We could have ended up like the Nazis. 
and we had a little of it. And I think there's some truth to that. But um, in America, the Constitution is supposed to protect us from those abuses, and we came perilously close to totally uh, losing it there. And I think we paid a price. We we lost a lot of the protection of the Constitution in those years that, that we never got back. Especially the part about the contract. Why do you Our say culture that? of contract was weakened by the New Deal. The because, contract between two people or a government and an individual was weakened for sake of more general laws. Um, one of the advisors of Roosevelt, and I follow him all the way through the book, I came to like him very much, was a collectivist, a sort of the left-wing part of the administration, uh, a fellow named Rex Tugwell. Um, and he he really did want to do European economy of scale model, and he was honest about it, and that's why I liked him. Hmm. He wasn't a political animal, and he failed because he was insufficiently political. He he believed in collectivism or the economy of scale very, very much, and he wanted big control things, and he wanted it, and I describe all the things he was for in the book, and it's very controversial. But after he left the administration, in part because he was too left-wing, he was more or less thrown out, he decided that his big project was to rewrite the Constitution. Lucky and that's, where, that's, about, that's about where a lot of them came out. The Constitution is too old. It's bad. It needs to be rewritten. We need to change it. That's really what Roosevelt um, was saying after Schechter, where he, when he deplored Schechter, and said that Schechter set the country back to the horse and buggy age. He said modern means change, including to the Constitution, or at the very least, the, we need to have expansive reinterpretation of the Constitution. Well, I have to mention, it's one of my uh, favorite things about living in the D.C. area is if you go down to the Jefferson Memorial, which is a, a, a thing most a lot of people have done, and there's nice quotes on the walls. And One of the quotes, though, which is not particularly Jeffersonian in my mind, is about how important it is to be flexible and how we need government to be flexible. And the Constitution, I don't think it's mentioned explicitly, but it's about how we need you know, our political system needs to be flexible. And I, it was built during the, um, during the Roosevelt administrations, and I always felt that that was Roosevelt's way of trying to justify some of the flexibility he wishes uh, were there that I don't think Jefferson would have been so excited about. Uh, well, I don't know about Je- – I think Jefferson is – these days people are debating a lot about what Lincoln meant and did. Yeah. Jefferson's another one. There are many Jeffersons uh, – some kinds of Democrats claim him for something. Some kind of Republicans sure. complain him for So he's a wonderful topic uh, to debate. Yeah. Um, well, we're, we're getting low on time. I want to mention one other thing that, that you don't get into in the book that I'd like your thoughts on because I'm sure you've looked into it. I started this discussion with a sort of stereotypical view of the Depression that Hoover did nothing – as a result, the economy plunged into disaster, and fortunately, Roosevelt came along, understood that government had to fix it, and he did. There's been a revision of that over the last, I'd say, 10 or 15 years in the public mind. Now there's a view – the new stereotype is, is often described this way. Well, Roosevelt tried really hard. He didn't, wasn't very successful. The, the New Deal didn't, didn't end the Depression. It uh, – and as you point out in the book, in, in the late 30s, we had a, a, a huge – downturn again. We'd made There was some progress in the economy in the early part of the Roosevelt years, but then in 37, 38, we had another major recession and unemployment soared again. Uh, so the, the, the revisionist view is, well, you know, Roosevelt meant well. He wasn't successful. The war ended the uh, depression. But as Bob Higgs has pointed out, economic historian, and we'll put uh, his paper up on the, on the website, some of his papers, uh, maybe the war didn't end it either. Uh, that that this that this atmosphere of of uncertainty that Roosevelt created through this uh, relentless reform and tinkering and trying this and that really made it much harder for the economy to recover from uh, the downturn. Maybe the war didn't end it either. And uh, I w- want to say that Bob Higgs' work was very important to me in writing this book. And if you want to know about the cost of uncertainty, one important place to go is to Bob Higgs. Um, secondly, I'd say the salient question is not did the war end the Depression or not, but why did the Depression last so long? Our forerunners, Russ, have looked at how the, the economy recovered a bit 
uh, late, you know, around chicken time and so on, or th- mid-30s, but it did not come back. Recovery is sort of a right. misleading word. It did not come back, GDP, until late, late in the 30s. Um, the economy was not where it had been, and the un- the um, the uh, market didn't come back till the 50s. So it's a very, very profound thing. Yeah, your book ends in 1940 um, with the uh, with the election of 1940, though. So you don't you don't you don't get into that, but it is it's a it's it's bizarre how this one event looms so large in our economic and political mythology. We'd had many serious uh, recessions before that we would call depressions. The 1894 was one, for example, but they were always relatively short-lived. The persistence of the Great Depression changed economics and politics in America forever, and we still live with its legacy in so many ways. Oh, absolutely. I, I would just came across a sentence that is Roosevelt at his most aggressive, and I wanted to read it. It's from his second inaugural. Um, he said... This would be 1936. Having yeah. won in 36, yeah. taken all but two states, 46 of 48 states. We are beginning to wipe out the line that divides the practical from the ideal, and in so doing, we are fashioning an instrument of unimagined power for the establishment of a morally better world. Hard to hear. Even Al Gore wouldn't talk like that. Yeah, today. it's pretty confident. Pretty uh, confident, right? <laughs> yeah. Whoa. And of course, uh, one of the things you talk about uh, in the book is the creation of the Social Security Administration, uh, which was 1936, if I remember correctly. Um, well, they passed the law in 36. Uh, in 35. 35. Um, I think I thought it was 36, but the but the um, first checks don't go out until. I After think 1940. The, well, until they, and it doesn't. People don't even they don't start paying into it either for a while. And the amounts, of course, are very very small, and both on the tax and the uh, benefit side. And there's a nice line in the book about how the the taxes are never going to go up. They're never going to be higher than a certain amount. I can't remember the amount, but of course, uh, it's a bizarre uh, example today. Uh, but that's just one example of the uh, of the literal legacy of the New Deal. Obviously, the Social Security. Administration and the Social Security tax, and unfortunately, the commingling of the ideas that that the payroll tax as a uh, uh, as funding your account that whole myth started uh, with Roosevelt, and it hampers us to this day in reforming the tax system and in dealing with the uh, the baby boom. Uh, it's just one more challenge we'll, we'll be facing over the next uh, few years. Yeah, well, absolutely. The, the the New Dealers had a lot of fun, and many authors, including my friend Jonathan Alter, have written about how we need to have that kind of fun and really be aggressive about <laughs> rewriting politics. But what I argue in this book is their fun precluded ours. If you look at the range of political candidates now, even uh, over on the right, Mitt Romney is not calling for the kind of reform that would actually... Um, assure that the U.S. economy stays strong and competitive over the coming generation, they don't dare. No, and that uh, comes out of the New Deal. Yeah, that, there's, that's true. It also, uh, I always like to make a plug for economic education. I think if if people understood economics better, we'd have better economic policies, as my uh, colleague Brian Kaplan writes about in his latest book. So I think if um, there's hope, but it's, uh, you're right, our, our what is acceptable and what is what is on the table and what is off the table is very much a product of the New Deal's uh, political uh, struggles and, and their aftermath. The true for, my title is the Forgotten Man, but the Forgotten Man in this book, well, at least one of them is today's voter. Yeah, well, to actually, close with that if you would. The title of the book it's a very haunting idea. Uh, you contrast the book's called the Forgotten Man, and you contrast Roosevelt's image of the Forgotten Man with a an earlier image that came out of um was it William Sumner Graham is that Well well this is uh this is uh, I think very very important and and we never learned it right Nope. Roosevelt spoke of the forgotten man at the bottom of the economic pyramid so that was his forgotten man the very poor man say the homeless man the little guy the little guy a, a, at the Excuse very me, bottom William Graham Sumner is William, the book, but yeah. he he took this phrase from an important teacher called William Graham Sumner who was at Yale and who wrote 
essentially a national bestseller in the 1880s called The Forgotten Man. Roosevelt probably didn't remember that he took it, but it was a phrase that was in the air. And by The Forgotten Man, Roosevelt meant something completely different. Excuse me, Sumner meant something completely different. He was His Forgotten Man was the man who subsidizes the dubious progressive project, the one who pays. And nowadays we're still in that debate. Who's the forgotten man? The one who gets the benefit or or the one who pays for the benefit. And more and more, it's Sumner's forgotten man who matters because most of us are Sumner's forgotten man. We are the taxpayer. Sumner wrote, he is the man who is never thought of. He works, he votes, generally he prays, but he always pays. That was in the 19th century, and it still holds. Yeah. I, I'm going to actually, I'd like to read the earlier part of the quote, which you, which you have at the frontispiece of the book. Oh, the algebra? Yeah, may I? Yes, you may. As soon as A observes something which seems to him to be wrong, from which X is suffering, A talks it over with B, and A and B then propose to get a law passed to remedy the evil and help X. Their law always proposes to determine what C shall do for X, or in the better case, what A, B, and C shall do for X. What I want to do is look up C. I want to show you what manner of man he is. I call him the forgotten man. Perhaps the appellation is not strictly correct. He is the man who never is thought of. And I, um, that's an 1883 quote. Um, still has a lot of wisdom for today. Thank you so much, Russ. My guest today has been Amity Schles, author of The Forgotten Man, A New History of the Great Depression. Amity, thanks for joining us. Take care. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.